Does any of this sound familiar? Maintain a healthy diet, get regular exercise, get eight hours of sleep, stay hydrated, get fresh air, meditate, activate, reduce this, increase that, pursue this, limit that. Following the golden rules of staying healthy is one thing, but we all know leading a healthy lifestyle is easier said than done, as we not only have to examine, but maintain and possibly change for the better our habits, thoughts, coping mechanisms, and overall ways in which we relate to our physical, mental, emotional, and even spiritual health. The reality is, being healthy is not a one-size-fits-all situation, where one method works well for everyone that tries it, because we have different bodies, goals, family health history, relationships, and experiences, and this is especially true when we reflect on nutrition. Hello, I'm Silvia Butanda, one of your hosts of Unrepresented, a podcast series that identifies and explores issues of representation in public leadership, business, nonprofit organizations, and today, nutrition. Joining us is Maria Mendoza, a registered and licensed dietitian with an intuitive eating and health at every size approach to share her insights and passion for nutrition and the impact of food in our day-to-day lives, our relationship with food and nutrition as a westernized culture, as well as the value of reflecting on and respecting the cultural histories and customs of food traditionally left out of mainstream narratives. Maria, welcome to Unrepresented. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So let's start off with just going back to where did your passion for nutrition come from? What experiences led you to pursue obtaining your master's of human nutrition? So I've always been interested in nutrition. I feel like it's been a big piece of my life, but for one reason or another, I went to school for other things. Um, and then when it came down to it, I was sitting in a job going, what am I doing? This is not what I enjoy doing. And I really started to look at like, what am I passionate about? What are the things that I enjoy? And so I took one nutrition class and decided that that was what I wanted to do. And so I enrolled in a master's program and went back to school while working um, and managed to go through all of the schooling and then get through the internship and have gotten to where I am now. So it has definitely, I mean, food is around us constantly growing up. um, I mean, my father had a a garden and so it was very big of like participating in those kinds of things. Um, And so it was always, meals were an important thing and sharing that time around the table. And so it's something that has always been important in my life and that I want to continue to kind of share with others. So those experiences, you know, going into the garden with your dad, like that really resonated later on when you were sitting in your job thinking, what am I doing? That obviously played into your decision. Yeah. What was like the, the, like the fine, like the ultimate drive factor that led you to, to switch careers completely? I was very unhappy in my job. (laughs) Um, And it was some, I mean, it was the business world, which depending on the job, I mean, that's fine, but I truly didn't feel like I was helping anyone in my position. And when I really started to look at it, I was like, what could I do to kind of make more of an impact in someone's life? And so I really wanted to use my love for food and really understanding like what it's doing in our bodies and combine that with being able to kind of share that information with others. Let's talk more about that. Tell us more about the intuitive eating and health at every size approach. How have you seen this movement change, you know, you and and your clients' relationships with food and their well-being overall? So it's very different than what we hear on the day-to-day basis. Um, I mean, we live in a culture 
that is very focused on the foods that we eat, what is right, what is wrong, um, kind of pushing us to make particular choices. And intuitive eating truly is reverting back to what is our body saying? And so really trying to get back in touch with what are those cues? What are the signals that our body is giving us and truly honoring those? And so the foundation truly is trusting our body that what we hear kind of day to day is very much based on these external cues. And so there's these rules and there are guidelines that we should be following. And with intuitive eating, it's very much how do we listen to what our body is saying and truly trust that it is going to guide us in the right direction. And so that has been extremely powerful with clients in that of kind of getting to break the chains of all of those external rules and diet culture and bringing it into like, what is their body asking for? When are they hungry? When are they full? And truly like honoring those cues. And so um, I love to work with people in that area because it is, it's just so different. And at the beginning, it is very much so of like, everyone around me is telling me different things. Why would I be doing this? But then there is generally it comes around that aha moment of it is, why don't I do this? Um, And so it's been amazing getting to see transformation with people. The health at every size kind of, it goes hand in hand, although it is different. Um, It is more so with the, the basis of that our health is not determined because of our size. And so again, in our culture, it is very much so that if you are above a particular range on the, in the BMI, that you are going to more or less, it seems to be that it's, you're guaranteed to develop particular things. Um, And health at every size truly is moving that to saying, what are your individual lab values? What is going on in your life? and making those determinations rather than basing it on a scale. I think everyone can appreciate that custom approach to to really listening to your unique body and not necessarily, you know, following the trends or what mainstream nutrition culture says is the right way to achieve your goals. And on that note, I mean, for anyone that has gone on a wellness journey to eat healthy and be active with fitness activities, there is an overwhelming amount of information coming at you on dieting and diet culture is rampant all around. Such is true also for the Latinx community in particular as seen with Herbalife marketing. So how can we as a community mitigate this culture? And what is your take on the culture as it is now around nutrition in the US? And how do you see that culture maybe staying the same or shifting? So, I mean, the herbal life, I would completely agree, is rampant. Um, it really is kind of ingrained. And the idea, I think, with all of this, so whether we're talking herbal life or talking Weight Watchers or Jenny Craig or whatever it might be, is really trying to push back against it and say that those aren't things that we're interested in. Those aren't things that we want to be doing because that's not... I mean, if it's something, let's say you enjoy an Herbalife shake and you want to be having it, that that is very different than I need to be doing this because my goals are to try to manipulate our body and to lose weight. And so the idea is really trying to kind of push back. I mean, the diet industry is a multi-billion. I think in 2020, it was over $70 billion, um, which just goes to show that, I mean, that is 
it's there for money. It's not truly for our wellness or our well-being. And so it is trying to pull away from that. And that doesn't mean necessarily if you know someone who sells it, going up to them and giving them your two cents. But it's why we don't need to necessarily invest in that and trying to spread these different ideas of what is what if we were to leave those things behind and focus more on ourselves? And so it's trying to create that shift, which thankfully is happening here in the U.S. right now. I mean, intuitive eating is becoming more and more well-known. I mean, the original book was written in 1995, and so it's taken some time. But there is definitely more of a culture around that. There are more and more things on social media. There's podcasts. There's a lot more information available. And so the idea is kind of pushing back and really trying to kind of create this new wave, um, which is truly radical compared to what is in our regular diet culture daily. And what about your clients? Have you had clients that come to you and have already tried these diet fads? Yes. So, I mean, I would say the vast majority of people that I see have um, what I what we consider to be yo-yo dieting. And so it's kind of doing one, bouncing off, doing another one. And sometimes it's the same one over and over again. Sometimes it's trying a variety of these. And truly that conversation is kind of what happened. Um, let's look at, did that work? Uh, I mean, what what is considered to even be that it worked? Um, and trying to kind of look at what are you wanting? Like, is that something that you're wanting to do for the rest of your life to continue this back and forth? Or are we looking for something that is sustainable and just a different outlook in life? What are some common misconceptions or myths that you've had to debunk about nutrition and dieting when you have new clients or just things that people have to unlearn from having, you know, tried dieting before or just focusing on nutrition? The biggest one is the good foods and bad foods. Um, it definitely depends on who I'm speaking with or, I mean, right now I would say carbs are bad. That's kind of the general um, one that I hear a lot of. And so it's very much with intuitive eating, there isn't good or bad. Food doesn't have a moral obligation. It's not, it doesn't have that depth to it. I mean, there is a lot that goes into food, but it's not necessarily like that it is good or bad. And so having those things and terming them as that and kind of categorizing them is only creating guilt and shame. And then those create other emotions and feelings around it. And so it's truly trying to put food onto a level playing field and really breaking that down. And so we discuss kind of what makes it bad, what makes it good, and really trying to break down like science-wise what's, what's happening in your body and what can we do about it. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, even just detaching of, of, you know, labeling of food, bad or good, just even that exercise can definitely relieve a lot of stress and, and pressure around, you know, not going for a certain food because you think it's quote unquote bad or sticking to something because you think it's quote unquote good. But I mean, food of, you know, of all kinds. Well, 
most food has its its value. <laughs> I mean, I, I truly, to me, everything does have some sort of value. I mean, even if maybe it doesn't have the most nutrients to it, um, it's still serving that purpose of maybe it is giving us some like emotional comfort or maybe it's providing memories or, I mean, it's, it's still serving a purpose regardless. And so a lot of this is kind of digging into that of really figuring out, is it okay to allow food to be more than just nutrients? On this note, I'm really curious to ask you about this, about superfoods. And just Googling that term brings up lists like top 15 superfoods, best superfoods to sneak into your diet. And across those lists and articles from what I saw, it just makes those foods and their benefits out to be quote unquote, newly discovered when it comes to marketing to you as consumers. Just an example, the consumption of matcha, for example, is a very, it's very popular to consume in the US, but the cultural ties and history of matcha in Japanese culture is not readily known. So many of these foods that are hyped now have been around for thousands of years and used across civilizations, yet mainstream audiences don't have that context. So what is your take on this superfoods or at least labeling food superfoods trend? And do you see this lasting and what could be done about that second part about amplifying the rich culture uh, or rich cultural histories to the mainstream audiences that these foods do possess? So I think as far as if a superfood exists, I'm going to say no. Um, I don't think that there is anything that has any like miracle power or these like magic properties to it. Um, obviously, yes, certain things are going to have more of, let's say, antioxidants or these particular things which are then highlighted in them. But I wouldn't say that it necessarily would be like superfood in that sense. But it is really interesting like you mentioned that they are coming from these like ancient cultures that these foods are then kind of reappearing and they become mainstream when for years and years they've existed and no one's really even thought about them and part of that is I mean we do discover some new foods but for the most part um, we just are kind of having to discover things that have been around that maybe just haven't been known in different cultures and so we bring them over with that, though, like you said, the marketing is very much on the superfood side and its benefits or what it could be doing for our body rather than the origin and where it's coming from. And so, I mean, I think it's extremely important that for those people who are doing the marketing, that they should be talking about that, that they need to be talking about where it's coming from. Um, I mean, this could open up and talk about lots of different things of how we move into capitalism and where that really goes. But it is kind of trying to like, in that sense of like make things white and trying to kind of like leave behind where it has come from and kind of like taking it as our own, um, which has its own problems. And so it is trying to really honor that it's history and kind of see where it has come from. But as you mentioned, I think a lot of people in those cultures might not even know that. When I was in school, I was actually in Argentina at the time, and I did a study on mate. I mean, when I say study, it was more of like interviewing people to understand. And so I was looking at the nutritional content and like the benefits truly of drinking mate and then talking to people about it no one had any idea of kind of like all of the benefits and like the things that are like the properties that are actually in it. And so in that same line, it's people are doing it because it's part of their culture rather than because of what it might be doing for us, which I think is that again, where it's not necessarily always about the nutrients. It's about 
the culture that's sharing the space with people and really like what is part of our history. Wow, that's interesting. So yeah, people that probably have had mate for years or decades just never really thought about the nutritional value or that just wasn't a factor in drinking that. So after those interviews and you, I, you know, you revealed more info on, on the mate, you know, what was the, the response or the reaction? Everyone was surprised. I mean, they were really, because truly the way that it is, it's a social thing. So you go to the park or you go to someone's home and you're sharing, I mean, you're, everyone is sharing the same mate and it is very much a social event rather than it being like someone is doing that for other purposes. And so, um, I mean, it didn't even cross somebody's mind that, I mean, not that they thought maybe it was like the good or the bad, but it wasn't even, it was just like, this is something I do and it's part of kind of. This is this is our culture. So on this, we can switch gears to culture, actually. Research shows that Latinos have an increased risk of diabetes and obesity, obesity after being in the U.S. for just one generation. What insights do you have to offer on this phenomena and how can we combat this health degradation in the Latinx community specifically? And, you know, we can talk about your your background as a certified diabetes care and education specialist, just because, you know, the data has shown that Hispanic Americans are more li- more likely to develop pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes. So what is your insight on all of this, um, you know, in relation to your background? So first, I just want to, I, I don't like the word obesity and overweight. And so I just kind of want to throw that out there because I do think those are tied to the BMI, which more and more is coming out about that and really showing how there is really no validity to it. It was created in the 1850s by an astronomer and it was truly for statistical purposes. And we have slowly but surely let it take over our healthcare system. Just from my point of view, um, it's not necessarily using those words. And I'm very, big with clients really trying to like move away from that categorization because again it's putting that importance on a scale rather than like what our bodies are doing thinking though of the culture and it is i mean we can look at like the data and as you said that it is that there is more incidence of diabetes or pre-diabetes in the latin culture and it's looking at what all what plays into that and so one of those things is is it's our genes genes are definitely going to play a role i mean when we look especially if we're talking about diabetes if there's a family history that already increases your risk so no matter what kind of like your ethnicity or race is if there is that family history it's going to be there uh more likely to appear. It is a lot too of like, what does our lifestyle look like? What are we doing? Um, And I think it's trying to look further into that and kind of see like, how are we living our lives? Um, Thinking of when I used to work in the clinic, a lot of the times when I was talking with people, it was really looking at what is your job? What are you doing? How does food fit into that? And just depending on a particular person's job, if you don't get breaks or you don't have time for lunch or depending on what it is, then we're focusing on maybe it's we get one meal a day or maybe two. And how does our body adapt to that? And so it really is looking at what is our lifestyle and kind of how do we maybe look at those things to see what is going on and really trying to push against 
what it is that, like, is it okay to be in a larger body? Like, is that okay to go in that direction? And so pushing back when doctors are saying, like, you need to be losing weight, because when we're looking at it, truly, if you look at studies, it shows that the back and forth, so the yo-yoing of, like, our weight is actually going to be worse for our health. And so thinking of that, too, if we maybe already have genes that are kind of lined up to do one thing, our lifestyle is also with that. And then we are choosing to kind of bounce back and forth with this. How is our body able to kind of handle everything that is going on? Well, thank you first for clarifying the use of terminology. I mean, me as a subject of just going through the, the health system, there it's always a focus on BMI, always a focus on your weight. And there's definitely been moments where doctors have said, you need to lose this amount of weight. And if you don't, you're in trouble. And it's just very dire every time weight is brought up. So if people are going through that, you know, if they're just kind of living their lives, going to the doctor and these conversations are coming up and that terminology is coming up, what do you recommend we do shift our mindset in those moments or how do we better process that information? So what I'm generally telling people is honestly, you have all the right in the world to refuse to get onto a scale. There are very few requirements. I mean, so let's say you're getting anesthesia or there are particular, I mean, if we're talking in the world of diabetes, then yes, like talking, thinking of insulin, like that is weight dependent, kind of like our dosing. But there are very few moments when we really need to know what our weight is. And so it's really pushing back in those scenarios and saying, no, thanks. I don't want to get my weight. Um, I don't need to. Clinics or like your doctor's office, they can always write refused. They're still going to get the same reimbursement. And so it's not sometimes they will say that it's for insurance purposes, but they have, they can do that and just put that and there will more than likely be pushback, but it's trying to stand your ground and be like, no, I don't necessarily need that. And it does help to bring the focus around to what's going on. Like this is what's happening. And yes, a doctor can still look at you and make whichever assumptions and still maybe say something. But the hope there is then that there's less of that. You need to lose that 5% or X amount or whatever it might be and putting it more towards this is what's going on. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with what our weight is. Okay, well, I want to switch gears and talk about the Latinitas. So, you know, as children, we, we work with children at Latinitas. There, at, at least in the in a Latino household, there is this relationship with food as far as, you know, if, if there's a need to have a, a child eat adult-sized portions in a house, which actually, that you know, I'm, I'm the oldest of six. It's a, a true account, you know, that they give you adult-sized portions and then they do punish you or, or are mad at you for not eating the full plate. So we also see this, I guess, in, in our general food culture when we as guests have to accept food so as not to seem rude or ungrateful. How can we set our boundaries and needs while also respecting our culture's norms or just our norms? How can we undo the possible damage done to our relationship with food it starts as children but it goes well into adulthood you know those the social cues or just that pressure to to give in to you know sharing fries with someone or with a group if you don't want to do that so and yeah and again just from personal experience that's definitely happened where i feel guilty for not taking part even though i know i shouldn't be so yeah what is kind of your take on that it is definitely something of like, finish your plate and you will sit here until you're done with it. Um, and it really is trying to, I mean, ideally it's 
having parents kind of shift that focus. And whether that's because this is maybe say what I went through kind of thing, and I don't want my kids to have to go through the same thing that I went through, or it is trying to kind of like take that step back and being like, can our, our children make those decisions? And it is hard because like you said, it's part of the culture. It is very much of like, this is the way that it's going to be. It's the way it has been. One of the resources that I generally offer is Ellen Satter, who she has an institute that is very focused on children and kind of like who determines what. And so one of the things that she has is the division of responsibilities. And that is the concept is very much that parents will just determine the what, the where, and the when, and the kids get to determine how much and whether they eat. And that is very different than that idea of like sit down and you must finish all of this because truly with that concept is if a child chooses not to eat then they just don't have anything. And I get that that seems like how would that actually work? But truly what it is is children learn that this is when food is offered and this is what is available and this is what I will be having or I will be going to bed hungry and we're not starving the child. The child will eat. Um, and it really is kind of trying to trust again in that, that their bodies will tell them. And that as long as we are providing them with that food, that they will be able to do that. And so it is very different than that. And so thinking of in if we've grown up with that, and that is kind of these experiences that we have had, then it is how do we kind of revert back to that, that maybe in those moments as a child, we recognized I'm full or I don't want this, but we had the obligation to finish it. And so trying to now as adults think, what is our body telling us? Is it saying this? And now we do have the choice where maybe before we didn't, do I want to do this or should I stop right here? And there's a lot of that of even pushing back. Like, what does it feel like to leave one bite on your plate? What happens? What what is that feeling of maybe leftovers or kind of having to throw something away and really trying to kind of process through what what happens there. So thinking also in that of being a guest in someone's home, it is very much so there is that feeling of I was just presented this, like I feel the obligation that I need to be having this. And so I think it depends on what is the scenario, like if it is family and there is that or a friend and there is that feeling of comfort where maybe you can say like, I've just eaten or I don't like this or I've had enough, being able to kind of set the boundary. If we're in a situation where maybe we don't have that ability or the feeling that we can set the boundary is maybe it does mean we eat outside of our comfort zone. And is that okay? Like, are we okay with recognizing I'm already full and I'm still having more, but is that okay? Like, is this something that I'm doing regularly? Or is this like, this is a situation that I'm in and this is kind of what I need to be doing right now and trying to be okay with that choice so that we don't necessarily maybe have the guilt that it's associated with how we're feeling. Every decision that we make around food, it has to come from this conscious place. For anyone that is wanting to start this kind of journey um, or speak to a nutritionist like you, what is something that they should be prepared to face? And it sounds like you're going to have to face making like small conscious decisions every time you're kind of around food. Yes. Um, the idea is once it becomes more like second nature, that there isn't as much of this constant focus on there. But at the front, there is very much so of like, let's really pay attention to what our body is saying and what's going on. I would say the other piece of that is it's a lot more than people think. I mean, a lot of times people will start working on this and they're like, oh, I thought we were just going to talk about food. Like this was no big deal kind of thing. And then it opens up this whole world of feelings and these thoughts and 
really a lot more, it becomes a lot more emotional than kind of people have anticipated. And so with that in mind too, is generally when I'm working with somebody, I ask if they have a therapist as well, because I think it's very important to kind of have that collaboration because it does bring up a lot of things of whether it's what happened when we were a child or memories around particular things, or maybe the first time um, that someone was taken to like a weight loss center or those kinds of things. And it really does bring up a lot. And so it's as best as we can kind of being prepared for that it is food is more than food. Well, at Latinitas, we do have girls explore health and wellness topics and we give them the basic rundown of why nutrition or at least looking at it is important while also being conscious as staff people, as people working with these with these girls about not imposing. I mean, in fact, I think just de- trying to detach them from societal pressures where super thin equals super fit, to not define self-worth by how much you weigh, to not you know push your body beyond uh, a safe limit. So many of us have experienced you know those situations in our pre-teen, teen, and adult years. So what is your general advice to the girls and women, I mean, too, listening out there, that you've also found comfort in the, that advice when it comes to what is going to be a lifelong process in taking care of your body? That it is hard. It truly is. We live in a culture that is constantly kind of saying the opposite thing. And so it is very much, we're supposed to look a certain way. We need to be doing these things to kind of modify our bodies. And it is really trying to kind of find that community and find people who have similar beliefs that it's okay to be truly who we are. That if someone is taller or shorter or has larger feet or smaller feet, that's okay. But when it comes to our body size, that that is we're supposed to look a particular way. And so it's trying to understand that our size is just another characteristic of us and really accepting that for who we are and trusting that our body is going to be guiding us and truly that empowerment of accepting us as we are and wanting to be different that we wouldn't all want to look like cookie cutter cutouts and so part of that is accepting that our size might be one of those distinguishing factors and What would you, just in general, what would you tell your younger self if you could go back? (laughs) Um, I mean, I think it really is of like not to put as much pressure on what other people are thinking. Um, I mean, there is so much of I should do this or I shouldn't do this because of what somebody else might think. And truly, I mean, over the years, you recognize that that really doesn't matter. Um, And in the moment, it seems kind of like life or death. But truly that with time, like it makes us who we are. It's that uniqueness of who we are. And while obviously all of those things were my lived experiences and it has helped me to become who I am, but I would definitely try to take some of the pressure off of worrying what what others were thinking. Really great advice for everyone to to remember. So we're going to kind of wrap up uh, with a few more fun questions, not necessarily super tied to nutrition, but just wanting to know more about you. So think of it as a speed round of just uh, questions when to fire at you and, and whatever comes to your mind first is what you share. So the first question is, if you had a book, what would be the title of that book and what advice would you give in it? Oh, that's tough. <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, I would say probably just because of the world of nutrition, I would have to 
share some information around that. The title, maybe food is more than food. Just really trying to explore and share that piece of it, of that really, I mean, there is so much that goes around it and really trying to enjoy it for all of its pieces rather than kind of feeling that shame or guilt around it. Well, that's, you're manifesting it. You're going to have to write a book now. <laughs> I don't see that happening. I used to write a blog and it failed. So I, we're, <laughs> odds are slim. Well, one day, we, you never know, we might see, you know, FIMTF the, <laughs> on the New York Times. Just stay tuned and maybe like 2022. There you go. <laughs> if you could host a dinner party, who would you invite? Who comes to mind? Oh, wow. Um... Dead or alive will make it harder. <laughs> I would. I think that what I would do is actually, it wouldn't necessarily be someone famous, but just trying to kind of take someone from each decade and putting them around a table and really trying to understand. Um, I mean, I personally, I think it would be probably women to get their perspectives of kind of like what has life been over the years and kind of understanding how much it has changed over their lives. And I mean, in each individual, I mean, over these years of how we have evolved to how we are now. That's a good question. I don't think I've ever heard anyone say it in that way. Just women from every decade. I definitely just chose very big celebrities. So I'll be starstruck at my own party, not talking to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> how would you like to be remembered? I mean, as someone who hopefully is is helping others um, and really trying to kind of spread this different or radical idea out there. And I mean, I'm also a mother, hopefully a good friend, a good partner. Um, so kind of being able to help others, but then also really trying to have that connection with people. What is the worst advice you've gotten? <laughs> trying to think of all of the advice I've gotten over the years here. <laughs> I would say... Probably just when traveling, having kind of someone giving these directions of where to actually go um, and ending up in a place and it being, wow, this is not where I wanted to be or this is not like the best situation I could be in right now. <laughs> what is the best advice you've gotten? Um, trust your instincts that truly like your gut. I mean, we know what we're doing kind of thing. I mean, thankfully, I feel like the way that I was raised, that I have kind of like that background and that I have kind of, I was directed in those ways. And so that if we can trust our instincts, we really will end up where we want to be. And what is your signature recipe? Well, my husband's favorite is it's chicken that's breaded with um, cornmeal and like chili powder and paprika with thin chilies and lime juice on top. The Maria special. <laughs> is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience? Um, I mean, I am more than happy to share information with other people. Um, and so if there are questions or if there is wanting to learn more about intuitive eating and health at every size, thankfully here in Austin, at least we have a very good community of professionals, so dietitians and therapists, as well as um, particular doctors that do have an understanding of this. And so I'm more than happy to kind of help guide people in this because of it is against the grain. And so if there's anything that I can do, I'd be more than happy. 
Are there any books or other podcasts that come to mind that that are, you know, just helpful? So the book Intuitive Eating is great. Um, there's also a book titled Health at Every Size by Lindo Bacon. He has also written Body Respect, which is Health at Every Size is very statistical. And then Body Respect is very much more, I would say, for kind of like the lay person it is, um, but gives that same information. Um, those are both great starting points. As far as podcasts go, Christy Harrison does Food Psych and she does an amazing job. She actually has a, a new book. Well, I say new. Came out last year, a book that's the anti-diet, um, but that is kind of a good starting point. Um, Christy Harrison also like on her website and all of that has a lot of more resources and kind of where to go. But I feel like she has a very good kind of that beginner. This is what exists out there. And these are kind of like topics that come up while going through it. Well, thank you, Maria, for joining us today. Once again, this was Maria Mendoza, licensed dietitian. Thank you so much for being on Unrepresented. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. I'm excited to reach out more to the Latinitas community. Thank you for listening to Unrepresented, a podcast series dedicated to exploring and identifying issues of representation in public leadership, business, nonprofit organizations, and more. For consultations with Maria and for more information about her work, please visit mariamendozard.com. To check out Latinitas and our mission, visit latinitasonline.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Latinitas. This has been Silvia Butanda, joined today by Maria Mendoza. See you next episode. Thank you.